Welcome to the Gentleman Ultra podcast, where we continue our special series of three World Cup questions, where we ask the same three questions to some of our friends in the world of culture. Uh, today, my very special guest is an uh, author and football journalist. Uh, you may know him from his work on The Guardian, uh, listening to him on BBC Radio, These Football Times. Um, has a book called Cheers, Tears and Jeers, History of England and the World Cup, and also Beautiful Bridesmaids, Dressed in Orange, if I could pronounce that right, The Unfulfilled Glory of Dutch Football. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome Gary Thacker. Thanks, Matt. Great to be on board, mate. I'm looking forward to a chat about football. It's one of my favourite things in life. <laughs> you can't go wrong with that, can you? So first question, yeah, so what's your, your favourite moment from your World Cup past? Well, uh, because I'm English and sort of quite old, I mean, I could have gone to 1966 and nailed all the questions on that tour, and I thought I'd be a bit too parochial. So I've sort of, I've, I've sidelined England and sort of reached out beyond that. So um, my favourite moment, I think, in World Cup history goes back to uh, 1974 and uh, the Netherlands playing Sweden in the second group game and the Cruyff turn. Um it, it's it's really weird because when I was doing the um, research work of the Dutch box and working on, um, he actually did it the same move in the nineteen seventy two European Cup final against Inter. Oh wow! Okay. Um, but it was never it was never sort of lauded. It was just sort of passed on as one of these moment things. But um, obviously in the World Cup, um, there's so much focus on it, and um, and, and yeah, he'd been sort of drifting out to the left quite a few times in the game, and. Um, I think it was Neskins who played all out to him. And the guy, the Swedish defender, guy called Olsen, who sort of closed him down. And <laughs> I, I did a bit of research on this guy. And he had I mean, a decent, decent professional football, a good career. Um, and I played a, several, you know, a number of international games and uh, obviously played in the World Cup. And he's sort of very self effacing about it, you know. And he's, he sort of seems quite happy to be the stooge <laughs> in, in, in like some kind of conjurer's uh, assistant. Um, and the ball came out to Cruyff and he's shaped to sort of play the ball back inside and Olsen stepped forward. And of course, Cruyff put the ball between his legs and, and, and scampered away. And I've got a passage in the book, the Bridesmaids book, that says um, something along the lines of like, um, the players having to get a ticket to go back into, to get back into the stadium and said, that far the long, wrong way. Well, this guy had to go taxi back first to the stadium. You know, he was absolutely lost. And the dumbfounded look on his face is, you know, he's where? Where did it go? Where did it go? It's a classic. It's a classic moment. If you can encapsulate the Dutch football um, of that World Cup in a moment, because it was poetry in motion, um, defeated the defender with magnificent skills, and then he crossed the ball and it came to nothing. Mm -hmm. A bit like the Dutch in the entire World Cup uh, 1974. Magical team. Magical team. Put some wonderful performances on. Right in the end, they finished second. Yeah. Why do you think it was that the the turn never got the notice in the seventy two Euros? I, I, you know, I really don't know, and I didn't know I didn't know about it until I was doing the research from the Outlook um, that's coming out next year. And because uh, obviously, you watch all the games, then you know all the way through, rather than just highlights, which you know when you're writing articles, newspapers uh, or max. Um, but I watched the game all the way through, and it, it, I thought, you know, I had to, I had to rewind a couple of times just to check it was, and it, it was the same move. Um, and uh, it just never got noticed or never highlighted. Uh, but it's one, of those, it's one of those moments that I suppose it needs to be um, performed the big stage to get the big attention. Um, you know, bigger stage in the World Cup, of course. And um, 
it's, it's, it, I think he's the only guy, only footballer who's got a sort of a move named after him. I mean, they used to say the other one the first was the Makalele position, sort of like the holding midfield player in front of the back four. But that's even that's sort of diminished in time. I mean, that, that was for the reasons. I mean, Troy's 74, he's now 26, better 50 years later, later now. And it's still, you know, when anybody does the Cruyff turn, I mean, I was doing my coaching badges, you know, there's one of the turns you had to teach was the Cruyff turn. And it's called the Cruyff turn. It's not called the drag back turn or whatever. It's called the Cruyff turn. So, you know, a moment, a moment sort of frozen time that's that's eternal, mm. eternal. Yeah. Do, you think, do you think it all just came natural to him? Like that's, he just did it off without even thinking about it? He's, um, he was he came, he came from an area, he was born in an area of Amsterdam, fairly sort of downtrodden area, which, and he used to play football on um, on the road and cut against sort of concrete walls and such like. And because the ball was so sort of apt to bounce in odd directions after, or from an uneven surface, surface, he, he said that this is what taught him is, is control of the ball, because you have to do that, you have to learn to play with the ball when it comes to unexpected angles. And it made him almost ability, give him the ability to sort of almost to sort of manipulate the ball in ways that other players couldn't even contemplate, let alone do. And I think that sort of thing, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's it's something you think, oh, I wonder if I could do this. I think it's just something that comes naturally to him. And years later, 1977, I think it was, when he was at Barcelona, um, Barcelona played uh, Aston Villa in the way for a couple of years. Um, and I used to live just north of Birmingham, uh, living in the UK, but I came out here, and uh, I had to go to Cruyff play. Um, you know, they're saying the only thing that sort of um, made famous that doesn't let you down is the Grand Canyon, and that's true about Cruyff as well. Cruyff was my, and he did the Cruyff turn a couple of times, but of course, um, it was not nearing that by this, by this stage, and he was sort of nearing the end of his sort of uh, spell with Barcelona, and the pitch, the pitch was. I mean, it's November time, November, December time in Birmingham, rain all day, the pitch was mud. And I still, to this day, I mean, I say this to many times when I talk about Cruyff, um, I'm still not sure his feet actually touched the ground. It just, he's, other people were plodding through treacle, and this guy was like a pond skater, a will the wisp, um, a magic. I mean, such a, such a sort of frail looking kid as well. You know, he was not like the sort of beefed up. You know, striker you see of these days, but I mean, it's this one. And, and certainly, and I've seen, uh, I'm fortunate in my lifetime to have seen some of the greatest players. The only players I've never seen was Pele, because two of the Maradona, I've seen all the rest, the Ronaldo's and Messi's. So to me, to me, it was the most skillful player I've ever seen. Beautiful. That's magic. That's awesome. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So, what was your, what's been your, your favorite game from your World Cup life? <clears throat> well, um, I can't, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit Dutch-centric, you know, as you can probably tell, and <laughs> what I've, I've written, written and, and uh, coming out next year as well, so I'm a bit Dutch-centric, but um, obviously the 74 final wasn't great because the Dutch lost, so what I've done is I've gone for the 1970 final, um, Brazil, uh, Italy, um, just because it's it's probably the best World Cup of all time. Um, I mean, I was sort of probably 13 at the time. And it was the first all-colour all World Cup, and that crackly commentary coming across from from Mexico and Brazil were were wonderful um, during that tournament. Um, Pelé was 
I mean, some of the things that I did, I mean, there's two things. Against Czechoslovakia, he tried to chip Ivo Viktor from the halfway line. Now, I mean, I know other people have done that since, but this is in the World Cup. And then in Europe, against the against um, Uruguay in the semi-final, um, it was the last minute of the game, and the ball was ball paid through. I think it was from Rivellino, one of the Rivellino, and the most outrageous dummy you've ever seen in your life. And he stepped over the ball and sent Mazzukovic, the Uruguay goalkeeper, pulling away. And a bit like Cruyff, he failed to put the ball in the net afterwards. But it's almost like that doesn't matter because. The end of a goal with a goal is just it's just prose. The movement was poet poetry. Um so so yeah, so um going back to the to the farm itself, um, you know, Italy had had that uh, titanic struggle with uh, with West Germany in the semi-final. Um there's a sign outside the um the Azteca Stadio Stadio Azteca in Mexico City that called that's that lords the game of the century. And it doesn't mean the final, it means the Germany Italy game. Now, and um, towards the end of that game, the Italians were out on the feet, but the Germans were wherever they were walking. And there's a little Rivera who could uh, raise a bit of a guard because you come on as a late sub. Um, so in the final, um, uh, Brazil scored quite early um, with Pelé's header. And then Boninsenia cu- uh, capitalised on a mistake and, and equalised. But in the second half, I th- I, Italy were running out of legs. But Brazil, at, at, um, in 1960, oh gosh, sorry, this is a long story, Frank, forgive me. Um, <laughs> in 1966, uh, when they lost in England, a lot of people said, no, it's because they were kicked out of the tournament. And there isn't an element of that, but in Brazil, that's not the reason they see. 1966 preparation was terrible. The coach uh, take, Piola had taken, um, sorry, I'll be married, had taken the loaded squad of 60 players or so around Brazil, almost like on a, on a lap of honour before even getting out to the tournament. And it was such a mess that when they arrived that the preparation was all over the show. But in 1970, that got it different. And there was a guy called, there was a, um, a Brazilian Navy lieutenant called Costa who had a plan. He'd been studying the uh, Mexico Olympics in 68 and the effects of altitude. And he'd got a plan. And he'd done he'd a, lot of, a lot of sorts of sports and how they're affected by altitude. And he got a plan to for the Brazilians to sort of um, get acclimatised. They had met in February, and they had this plan to move to different levels of altitude so that they they, they get that sort of benefits and wouldn't cost them. So by the time they got to Mexico City, they were really well prepared, the fittest team in in, in the tournament, and the best team as well. And so suddenly, you know, you've got all, all the boxes ticked. And in the second half, really, they they just put on a, a wonderful display. And I say the Italians were probably at their feet and tired, but it shouldn't detract from the skills that Brazil played. In that goal. And obviously the, uh, the the famous goal, Carlos Alberto, last goal, uh, is, is something to behold. With Cla- Claudio Aldo, who was a young player who played Botafogo, uh, midfield player who played alongside Gerson. He was like the holding midfield player to allow Gerson to play. And there's a piece in that uh, run to the goal where in his own half, it dribbles around, I, I think it's four. Italians in the space of five metres. And that just blows the ball backwards. It was almost like a jeu de vie moment. You know, I could do this, I'm going to do this. And, um, so, uh, yeah, I think I think the best part of that game is that, I mean, Italy it, it a really good side, but they were playing Catanaccio. And some, you know, if you like our football, that's perhaps not the best thing. Like the best team won. It doesn't always happen in the World Cup. 1982 Brazilian team didn't win. 
1974, the mm-hmm. Dutch team didn't win. Mm-hmm. Uh, 54, mm-hmm. the Hungarians didn't win. But in 70, the best team won. And football was mm-hmm. a, a shot in the arm of lifelong. And yet, and yet, the crazy thing is, the legacy that left was funded in 1974. Tagalog, who was the manager in the 70, took a different result to the World Cup in Germany. And uh, they were a snarling street fighter team. I mean, really defensive-minded, over-physical. Um, they played the Dutch in what was a surrogate semi-final almost, because it was like a second group game. And uh, they, were, they were sort of... I mean, the Dutch can look after themselves, but they were counter-punching to the, to the Brazilians' punches. And the Dutch beat them. And it almost... It, it was a satisfying thing. And Pelé was sitting stand at the time, and he said he couldn't believe Brazil were playing this way. Just four years after... They'd enthralled and entertained the world in this 70 World Cup final. Mm-hmm. So that's probably mm-hmm. the best World Cup final I can remember. And certainly one of the best World Cup games. Yeah. What do you think that yeah. was that they had such a shift between 70 and 74? Was there a reasoning they're behind lost. it or an idea or a logic? Yeah, well, they lost a lot of players. Um, the only two players who played against uh, um, the Netherlands that played in the final 70 were Rivellino and Giazzinio. Neither were the players that they were four years ago. Um, a lot of players and the players had sort of fell by the ways. They'd lost Pele, they'd lost Gerson. Gerson, massively underrated player, creative force, public mastery, midfield pulling the strings. Um, but Zagallo had got this sort of scientific, um, because the way they'd prepared, science had become the sort of dominant discipline. And um, it, it, the flair was sort of sacrificed on the altar of, of science and tactics, whereas historically Brazilians had always had this thing and I, I spoke to um, Andrew Downey, who wrote Socrates' book about the Brazil book of working on the moment, and he said that you know, it's the, the sort of um, myth, legend about Brazil don't care how many times they can see as long as they score one more. It's true. It's true. It was in those days anyway. But that almost was sort of sacrificed and by the time you get to 1982, I think I'm right in saying Falcao, who's playing for Roma, was the our first non-Brazilian or non-Brazilian-based player. But after that, it sort of there weren't there weren't South America anymore. All the money in Europe had dragged all the best players to uh, to Europe, and that mystique had gone. That's Canario shirts drama, that magic, that um, I don't know what you call it. That sort of that belief. That they were Brazilian was what had been watered down. Yeah. Do you, do you remember that? Like, obviously, that was your. If that was one of your first World Cups as a youngster, were you were you having to come home from school to watch that, or was that uh, given the time differences? I, do you know? I, I can't remember. I think it was on a Sunday anyway. If my memory says me right, the final. Um, but I did watch most of the games throughout, and I, I don't. I mean. Going back 50 years now, so it's difficult to recall. Um, but if I'd had to run home from school to watch it, I'll perish and would have done that. No doubt about that. Um, and obviously, the, the sort of the one game of the game in that sort of time was the obviously England, England Brazil games. Mm. You've got the world, they had the, the, the teams that had won the three last three World Cups in this place in the same group. I mean, you can't imagine that these days with the seedings they have now. Um, but then England Brazil and um. It was the only game where Zagallo, uh, the Brazilian coach, um, 
flexed the uh, tactics a little bit and was a bit more defensive, a little bit more solid, rather than if, if they're letting them score, the logical letting them score, you're going to be difficult to score more than one against them. But um, yeah, yeah, it was a really good, it was a great tournament, great tournament, it's a great football. As I say, the Italian, Italy, Germany game was stunning in dramas. After the, the extra time, I've never seen a more brutal game of football. It's like two heavyweight boxers out on the feet, but standing, swinging haymakers at each other all the time. And you know, and uh, I've got a, there's a there's a, a great piece of um, commentary. I can't in the Italian context now. When, when Luigi Riva scores and drives in the far corner, and the guy, the, the, I can't remember the commentator's name, but he hangs on for a four-letter word, Riva. You made it last about 20 seconds. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's a wonderful piece of commentary. If you ever get a chance to listen to it. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, it, yeah, that was it's a wonderful final. And that, that game, I say, against Germany was, was absolutely brutal. Mm. And I guess two-part question, or I don't know if you would know, but I think was that one of the first team first teams like Brazil you mentioned there about science? I think from memory, I, I can't remember if I've read it or I've heard it. I may have heard Tim Vickery talk about this, but... That was one of the first national teams in the first World Cups where they actually took a doctor with them. They took support staff. They took physios, and they and they, like you said, they they'd studied the, the effects yeah. of altitude and 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 the impact on the team, and and of course recovery. You know, having to play in Indeed. that heat in front of you know a hundred thousand people every four days, it's going to get to you. There's certainly a lot of staff, and I think that the, 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 I mean, although they they will have taken fitness, shall we say, people trainers with them to 66. This wasn't, you know, the cold water and sponge mm. in a bucket sort yes. of um, health. And the, magic, the magic sponge. Um, <laughs> a magic sponge sort of. Sponge is the time and a magic sponge. That's it. Yeah, from there, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think, it, I mean, yeah, I mean, it probably was one of the first first um, teams to sort of adopt a more scientific approach yep. to the uh, players preparation as you say and uh, and recovery phase and certainly delivered um dividends for them yeah and then again like in 70 you know way better than me but was that a lot of the 1966 winning team that played against brazil in in that that match and and then also to that that iconic photo of like is it bobby moore and pele yeah yeah is there any sort of story behind that that photo, yes, or is, is it any? Are they just swapping it's shirts and they just happen to capture? No, it? There is a good story behind it. And I, and I, um, in Alex Downey's book, The Greatest Show on Earth, um, he's got the quotation, and uh, Bobby Moore says to Pele, um, "I'll see you in the final." And Pele said, "Yeah, I'm sure you will," um, because the the teams have massive respect for each other. Now, almost to the day, twelve months before, um, Ramsey took England on a tour to South America, and they played Brazil. And they were beating Brazil. Colin Bell scored for England. Um, and they were, they were leading Brazil with about 15 minutes to play. Brazil had missed a penalty as well. Carlos Alberto had a penalty saved by Gordon Banks. And uh, they scored. Brazil scored two late goals. And after that game, Ramsey was convinced that a little more fitness, a little more concentration, they would have seen, seen England over the line. And that fed into the, the tactics that he, he deployed. Now, at the time then... Um, Brazilian coach, a guy called Saldana, who was previously a, a, a journalist, although he had coached uh, Botafogo to uh, uh, a state championship as well. And uh, But he was sacked just before the, um, about three months before the World Cup started, and Zagalo was installed instead. 
and Saldana had actually sort of a similar approach that, you know, oh, we can wear, wear England down. And that was sort of fed into the Brazilian approach to the game as well. So it's amazing how these sort of both teams took positives from a game and it sort of fed into the, the tactics that they deployed. You say about players who were, who were in 66 when Banks was there still, probably Moore was there still, but I think of the back line, Moore was the only one. He was there, Newton, the uh, bone, played centre half alongside Bobby Moore. I can't remember who played with the fullback. Um, midfield, Alan Ball was still there, Martin Peters was still there, Bobby Charlton was still there, Jeff Hurst was still there. But uh, I think that's not the only one, so it's about half a team. It was probably, I mean, arguably, the 70 team was arguably a stronger team than the team that won in 66, but obviously at home advantage is a sort of massive um, thing. And the other thing that perhaps diminished that is the fact that Bobby Charlton was four years older and really suffered in the, uh, the Mexican heat. Yeah. I'm just looking at it now. It's, yeah, Tommy Wright at right fullback. Brian, right. is it Brian the Bone? Brian the Bone? Brian the Bone played some half, yeah. Yep, Bobby Moore and then Terry Cooper. Terry Cooper, yeah. yeah. And then yeah. Uh, well, the subs were Colin Bell and Jeff Astor, who obviously replaced Yeah, well, Astor came on. Yeah, they came on towards the end. And there was a, uh, basically, um, England were losing when they sent Astor on. I had about, I don't know, 20 minutes to play, something like that, I would guess. Yeah. Something like that. And he sent Astor and Colin Bell on for, um, I think it took Franny Lee off. Uh, and basically, they launched just an aerial attack. So they had Jeff Hurst and Jeff Astle, two big strikers, big traditional English strikers, and launched aerial balls into the box. And there was one chance to fell to Astle. Um, I think it was Claudio Albo and Brito went up for And between them, knocked it against each other. He fell to Astle by the penalty spot. He's only been in the pitch a few minutes. And in that moment, he scuffed the shot wide and... For ages afterwards, because um, he played West Brom and Germany, quite close to where he used to live, and he took a lot of stick for costing England the World Cup. And yet, even if he'd have scored and there'd been a draw, England was still about to play West Germany because of goal difference. So it didn't really make any difference other than perhaps for a little bit of prestige. But um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, interesting. The other cool thing I just noticed in that game, like I'm looking at the lineups here, and the referee yeah. was Abraham Klein. Now, yeah, I, know, well, I know that name, and I don't know if anyone listening would know that name, but I definitely know that name from uh, Brazil, Brazil, Italy. Geez, he got he got to watch some really good games, or, you know, he got to really referee some fantastic matches, didn't he? We were we were very, at the beach football time, we were very, very fortunate to have Abraham on a podcast. Um, Stu, Stu Horsfield wrote a book in 1982, uh, Brazil, and spelled Abraham about his, his sort of contribution that going to see referee the Italy-Brazil game. Um, in 1982, the Rossi Attrick game. Mm-hmm. And he, he asked him, I if he come on a podcast with us. And, he, and bless his cotton socks, he did. And it was great to talk to him about the World Cup. And in 1970, yeah. he, uh, sorry, 1974, um, he'd been uh, one of the top referees in the tournament. And he'd, so, no, so, forgive me, 78, he wasn't there in 74, uh, 78. Um, and he'd refereed Argentina against Italy. It might have been against Italy. I can't remember. I think it was Italy. Yeah, and, he was given the Argentina-Italy uh, match in Group A. Yeah. Um, and he was brilliant. He did Brazil, yeah, versus, yeah. Brazil versus Italy in 82. Uh, he did yeah, the third place match between Italy and Brazil in 1978. Do you know why he didn't yeah. go to 74? He can probably explain yes, it better than me. I do. Yeah. Because of the basic Munich Olympics, uh, the... the uh, Disaster there, the, the tragedy with the killing of the athletes, and um, because he was he was Israeli, he didn't he he, he didn't go because of that. Yeah. And a lot of um, 
failing some because of the Germany um, the Munich Olympic tragedy. Um, I was going to say, when he, play, he refereed the Italy-Argentina Italy, um, game, unlike the other referees who'd been intimidated by the partisan crowd, Argentinian players diving all over the place for penalties, and he didn't turn. He got rave reviews, and he was promised the final. Mm. Like, I'm he should have got the final. But because of that game, Argentina um, what's word, appealed against Oh, the that's point. right. Yeah, yeah, now you say that for it sounds familiar. Me too, telling guys instead whose name escapes me, and he and Abraham got the um, the third and fourth playoff instead. Yeah, fourth Although he was he was slated to do a replay if the World Cup final went to a replay, um, he tells us. But the guy, so you know, you're in a situation where this is. I mean, this is fairly common knowledge at the time. <clears throat> the Italian referee knows he's only there because the Argentinians made the appointment possible. What pressure! That primary, I mean, I don't think I've watched the game. I've watched the game several times because it walks I've been watching over the years. Um, I mean, you know, no, I wouldn't say any referee is particularly biased, but there's a sort of leaning sometimes you can see it's difficult to <laughs> see against a certain team. And in that game, um, I can't remember the guy's name, yeah. um, game. but uh, he was sort of, um, yeah, it's a difficult situation, but uh, yeah, Abraham refereed some, some, some really top ranked games, and in fact. In the uh, opening game of the tournament, he ran the line for the Brazil Brazil Czechoslovakia game. He ran the line because they didn't FIFA had this crazy system where they had referees, no linesmen. They had referees, so basically the referees were appointed to run the line. And it's a crazy situation because it's a different skill. It's an entirely different skill to referee the game to, to running the line. It doesn't happen uh, in more recent World Cup times, but uh, in that in that. In '78, they they did. They had this. Uh, they were all referees. I say Abraham ran the line in the Brazil uh, checks back again. Yeah, you can't imagine it a game now without an assistant referee or you know the fourth official who holds up the sign yeah. and you know yeah, yeah. indicates the time crazy, of VAR, etc., etc. Yeah, yeah. To give a referee a flag and say, okay, you're a linesman now. I mean, I say it's just a different skill. Yeah. You're looking at different aspects of the game, but, uh, but that's what they did. And I suppose that the idea was that they were better, more experienced officials. But you know, it's like saying, Well, you know, I've got an experienced fallback, I'll put him as a striker. It's different skill, it's different skill, yep, yeah. yeah, very, very, very different indeed. Yeah, I only remember my amateur football days, and we didn't have a linesman, and they they one player from each side goes to run the line, and I remember the ref saying. You know, if you, if you're rotating, because obviously you're an older older gentleman over thirties and, and the like, and they say, you know, everyone take a turn when you're on the subs bench. And I remember the very first time I did it, and I was like, it's offside. And I was like, wait, which way did the? Wow, I've never paid any attention. Which way do I point the flag? Do I go against or forward? Like this is too much pressure. Does anyone else want to do it? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, like yeah. you say, very different skill, very different skill, especially nowadays. If you know. The passive onside and the you know the, the all the the offs and onsides and it, it's you know you're seeing it in this World Cup with all the 3D technology and the the VAR you know there's seven officials in the VAR room that's in, oh, amazing no. amazing I don't know how they really? get one opinion from you know and they're all from different nationalities too I was like how do they have a community right. it's amazing it's interesting because I used to have I mean I've, I've had sort of because of my sort of uh, movements I've had experience with VAR in the UK and VAR in Spain. And VAR in Spain is it's a lot more slick. It's a lot more slick than it is in the UK. And they'll sort of, you know, they'll if they want the referee to 
Because people say, oh, VAR made the decision. VAR don't make any decisions except line decisions. Yeah. So offsides, and if it's over the goal line, they make, because that's matter of fact. Then. Um, but for uh, any offences, VAR doesn't make a decision. If, it, then, if the referees miss something, they'll say, I think you possibly need to have a look at this. Yeah, and then the referee yeah, makes a yeah. decision. So, I mean, I mean, a lot of people slate VAR. Well, VAR didn't this one. And VAR doesn't really get many things wrong. The referee might, but the, ref- the VAR is there to make a line decision. Yeah. yeah. You know. And if they miss it, I they mean, miss it. What are you going to do? Yeah. I see with VAR, people say, well, you know, is, is half an inch offside? Well, you know, no, it's offside. I mean, it's not, it's not a grey area. It's like, you know, you can't be a little bit dead. You're offside or you're not offside. <laughs> yeah, and so right. people say, well, perhaps there ought to be a six inch leeway. Well, if there's a six inch leeway, what happens if it's six and a half inches? I mean, <laughs> yeah. extend it to 10, make it 10 inches. Yeah, then, yeah. Then, you know, yeah then, then, then 10 12, and a half, then 11. Yeah. I tell you what, let's not bother with offside anymore. But there you go. Just park a striker up near the goalkeeper and just hoof it long. Yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know if you, you probably won't know this. Before. From my old memories, but years and years ago, it's between called the Anglo-Italian tournament. Uh, the, yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've read about it and I've seen clips about it, but uh, obviously, well, they experimented with at the end of the eighteen-yard line, extended it to the edge of the pitch, and people were only offside in advance of that line. Okay, and they used to have players literally standing on that on the edge of that line, and you know, it's an experiment, and yeah, that's fine. It's it's a fairly sort of Nothing tournament, so it tries to get but it really didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> so players are standing on the line, on, uh, but there you go. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Did you did you get to see any of the uh, Anglo-Italian Cup? Because obviously you, you mentioned that you, you came from like you know Birmingham area. I guess I think um, I think from memory was it no? Well, I'm trying to think who it was now. When the, the last team, I know there was was it not no not Notts County. There's a famous one with Brescia. I think it was Brescia and Notts County when it was professional again. But I know like Derby and, uh, you know, it was, yeah. it was Notts County. Notts County beat Ascoli and they lost the year before to Brescia. But, yeah, I know um, it's that's a crazy tournament now to think that teams like you know, Middlesbrough and Wolverhampton are playing Juventus and Napoli and Lazio and especially like <laughs> back in that day. It, it makes no sense to me now. I don't. I don't know how no. it came about or where it came from, but yeah, I can't remember where it came from. To be honest with you, but I don't know. I don't know. But uh, it was a, it was an experimental thing, and you know, it didn't really work. It yeah, didn't really work. Yeah. I thought originally it was meant to be second division clubs only. I could be wrong, but yeah, it's crazy to think of it. think of it now. Like, it's just so many games. Like, how many more games can you play? Really? Yeah, yeah. So. Your favourite team from your World Cup journey? And I know you've got plenty, and uh, you wrote a book about one of them. But yeah, it's without giving the answer uh, that's away. Where, that's where I'm going. That's where I'm going. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I say it would be easy, easy for me to say England, you know, but you know, put that to one side. Brazil, Brazil, seventy come close. But my favourite non-English international team would have to be the Dutch team. Just phenomenal, phenomenal. I, I mean, the best. The best team I've seen never to win a World Cup. Um, every player, every manager player who played there were, was was exceptionally skilled. Um, the only the only sort of um, uh, sort of compromise in my mind was the goalkeeper, um, Jan Youngblood. Um, ahead of ahead of the tournaments, um, because uh, obviously uh, Mickles took 
was coach at the tournament. He didn't take the Dutch to the tournament because a Czech, Czech born, although I think it was naturalized Dutch, called Fedonk, who qualified um, the Dutch. And it was really weird the way they qualified. From the last game, they played a, a group with Belgium, I want to say Norway and Iceland. I think that's true. It's always somebody like that it might be Finland. But basically, um, in the last game, um, the Dutch had a goal difference advantage over the Belgians. The Belgians had not conceded a single goal in the entire qualifying tournament. It was played at the Olympisch Stadia in Amsterdam. And it was nil-nil all the way through, and a draw would got the Dutch through. In the last minute, the Belgians had a free kick. Uh, Van Helsen took, took it and whipped it into the far stick, and it was Van Halen who put it into the net. And the referee, the line from the far side, flat for offside. And if you look at the replay, there was at least four Dutch players playing the Hayen on side. So the Dutch really shouldn't have been at the World Cup in 74. Yeah. yeah. And the predominantly, and, and all it was it pretty much, it was, was it Cruyff the only one that was playing outside of the Netherlands at the time, like outside of Holland? Or was no, he the only no, foreign? Brink, Renson Brink was playing in Belgium. Okay, okay. He played oh, right. But uh, yeah, Cruyff was playing. Um, and uh, ironically, I mean, before, I think it was before the semi final, or the, the second group phases, that Neeskins signed for Barcelona, the, the Neeskins deal to go to Barcelona. And then, so he was sort of half and half, shall we say. <laughs> but ahead of the head of the tournament, the goalkeeping situation for the Dutch national team uh, was um, Jan van Beveren. Was 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 miles away the best Dutch goalkeeper, one of the best in Europe, and he was was the established goalkeeper. And he got an injury in a friendly game, um, probably a few months before, and he missed a couple of games. And Pete Shrivers, uh, the ex goalkeeper, came back instead, and he was ready for the tournament, and he was selected in the original pre-squad, shall we say? Yep. And uh, it'd always been this. He paid for PSV. There's always been this rivalry between PSV and Ajax and the established sort of powers. And um, Mikkels, who had taken over by this time, said, wanted uh, Van Beveren to play in this friendly arranged with the German club, which was Hanover. Right? And Van Beveren didn't want to risk it. He said, Look, I'll play a half if you really want me to, but I don't really want to. Mikkels took the up, basically kicked him out of the squad. Yeah, there was, there was, it seemed then that Pete Shrivers would inherit the number one uh, shirt from um, from Van Beveren. Um, oh, oh, it was either going to be him or Eddie Peters, Grafflander has played for uh, Feyenoord. But apparently with the sort of um, promptings of Cruyff, instead, Mikkel selected a goalkeeper who hadn't played, played one international game, which is, which is encompassed five minutes as a sub at the end of the game, 12 years previously. And in that five minutes, he conceded a goal. Yeah. And yeah. they selected Jan Youngblood from F FC Amsterdam. As I say, they played, hadn't played international for 12 years. FC and yeah. Who's FC? Is that like a second division team in Amsterdam? Uh, no, at the time they were uh, at Eredivisie side, but they're certainly the second ranked side in Amsterdam, not not, not even, in fact, probably the third ranked side in Amsterdam. Although, uh, it's where um, actually it's where Rensenbrink started. They were they, they have been an amateur team quite 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 late. Um, so Jan Bionfler, the logic was 
was expressed as being that Youngblood was a better player with his feet because the total football situation, he could play the ball, come out and take the ball right out. In the entire tournament, and I've watched every game in that tournament many times, in the entire tournament, he only touches the ball outside of his head with his feet once. <laughs> and that's when the run was over the top of defence, and he comes out of the area and he lobs it down the park. Now, I mean, you know, you don't need to be a particularly good goalkeeper your feet to do that. But, but, you know, I have to say, in, in fairness, they already conceded, they already conceded um, one goal prior to the final, which was against uh, Bulgaria. It was no goal by Kroll. They were four up at the time, so it was pretty academic anyway. And then in the final. But, you know, I mean, for a team that was such a Rolls-Royce of teams, Serbia, Kroll, uh, Hahn, uh, Weisberg, and uh, Niskins, uh, Renson Brink, uh, Cruyff, um, Johnny Rep, as we said, Johnny Rep. Yep. Yeah, for a team like that, have a goalkeeper who played five minutes in national football twelve years ago. Seems like a bit like sort of you know, throwing a box cart in the back of a Rolls Royce or something. But, you know, <laughs> hey, that's, that's touch football for you. And of course, this. Sorry, I'm a rambling too much here. No, 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 not uh, at all. Yeah. Although I always um, found it interesting because were they the first team that essentially? Uh, didn't wear one to you know one to eleven because it was it was it was alphabetical order wasn't it there? except for Cruyff he uh, said a traditional Cruyff. numbering systems like they Correct. they were numbered alphabetically by surname yeah the same thing happened in seventy eight with Argentina they were numbered alphabetically as well mm-hmm. uh, so so anyways I was saying that uh, there again another injury situation Barry Holsoff who played for played the Liverpool for Ajax was the established centre back along with uh, Venus uh, Israel who played for uh, Feyenoord. Both had injuries. Um, basically, um, Holstoff um, had a knee injury in a league game, an uh, Eredivisie game, a month or so, two months or so before the tournament. And he never played for the Dutch national team again. As a centre-half, he played 13 games for the Dutch national team and scored six goals from, from centre-half. Yeah, and this was the loss... <laughs> There'd be some strikers would be jealous of that record, wouldn't they? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a brilliant scoring record. And uh, Ronis Israel, who played alongside him, had been uh, also had a, a, a fairly long-standing knee injury, but um, Mikkels took him instead. But instead of playing, uh, looking for another centre-half, this is the Dutch crazy way of mm. playing. He, he picked Reisberg, who I think had played one game previously, Feyenoord, as a fullback to play centre-half. And alongside him, he placed Alec Hahn, the Ajax player, as a midfield player. So you had a goalkeeper who hadn't played for 12 years, who had never played as a defender, and you had Royce Bergen, who had never played as a centre-half at the heart of the Dutch defence. But amazingly, that sort of situation did contribute to them playing the total football because Hahn obviously had the ability to sort of instigate moves from the back because he had sports yeah, yeah. But yeah, the Dutch team, yeah. that would be certainly my favourite team of, of World Cup teams aside from because they're just magic. Do you remember magic. watching them? Do you remember watching it for the first time on television? Uh, yeah, because by this time, I've um, sort of grown up on, on sort of Ajax and final because Ajax lost the 69 European Cup to Inter. Inter I think yeah. it was Inter. No, it was Milan. It was Milan. And then Feyenoord won it in 70. Ajax won it in 71, 72, 73. Wow. So, I mean, I'd sort of 
in integrating into Dutch football by this time and the success they'd had and, and sort of appreciating the way they play. So by 74, I was, it was a proper bromance for me <laughs> with the, the Dutch football. Um, oh, yeah, they, were, they were brilliant. And I, you know, I watched all the games and they played Argentina in the uh, second group phase. Krupp uh, scored this magical goal. Um, uh, Van Hanneke, Ben Van Hanneke, I've got to mention him as well. Well, what a player he was. Blood uh, this ball and Cruyff caressed it out of the air. I mean, he, he caught it with his foot like I could catch it with my hand, <clears throat> brought it down, balletic movement around the goalkeeper, rolled into the onion bag for it. It was a wonderful. And late in the game, I think I think the touch was three or four at the time. The goal, the Argentine goalkeeper berated his defenders for letting him. I'm not bullet tracking a run, you know. I don't even mind that. There's only 11 here and there. I mean, it's vague enough players. There's just not enough players in the six or seven players. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. that was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I'm just, I looked at the squad list now, and it's the, the large majority of players in that squad, they're all on single figure caps. Four yeah. caps, eight caps, five, one, five, one, five, two, eight, four. Three and ten, like there's only what two, four, seven or eight players out of the the twenty twenty two that actually have more than ten caps. It's incredible. It's it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. In that in that tournament, um, the same eleven started every game for the Dutch team, except yeah. against Sweden, mm. when Kaiser replaced Rensenbrink. So of those seven or eight players you just mentioned, they're probably the core of the team that played. In the oh, tournament, so you're sense. talking Serbia, yeah. Kral, um, Van Hannigan, Niskins, Cruyff, um, Bensonbrink. I think Israel is it Israel, Rinus Israel. He's the guy who was injured. Um, yeah. as I said, he's the, the most experienced with 44 caps. Amazing, yeah. Well, he captained he captained Feyenoord when they won the 70, um, 70, you know, 70, um, European Cup, and he actually scored, he scored uh, the equalizer that, um. When uh, after Tony Gavin put Celtic ahead, mm. yeah. And and how did um how did the manager how did he how did he manage? Pardon the pun. All of that that IX PSV final, you know, like the the little was it was it all was it all Cruyff's show? Did he run the show behind the scenes or like because we we know obviously he's a very successful <laughs> coach and he's a legend of coaching, but to manage all those personalities and manage that rivalry within the squad, you've seen how it. It pulls apart and breaks apart other teams at that at that that level. Yeah, well, Crook was massively influential. There's no there's no doubt, and he was legend has it he was the guy that influenced the Kane VB to FA to uh, get rid of Fred Duncan, take um, give Mickles the, the reins for the World Cup. Um, obviously, the Mickles had got um, a lot of experience with the Irish players because he's been there since nineteen. 19- so he's been there for a long time, so all of these players come through. But the other benefit was at, at Feyenoord, um, this guy called Ernst Happy, who was coach at Feyenoord, and uh, took him to the European Cup. And um, he had a sort of, not the same philosophy, but a similar philosophy. In fact, there's a famous game which happened just ahead of the Feyenoord um, European Cup triumph in the Soviet tail end of the area to busy season 69 70. And um, Ajax were ahead in the league. And Fenn would need to win this game. There's only three or four games they put in the season. And Ajax at the time, under Mickles, <laughs> had a 4 2 4 formation. Mickles had final played 4 3 3, far more fluid formation, 4 3 3. And 
basically to fail or dominated the game throughout the entire um, situation. We're winning 3-1 with around, I don't know, 10 minutes left to play and the, the goalkeeper um, made a couple of mistakes and gifted Ajax a draw and uh, it cost him his place in the European Cup final a couple of, a couple of weeks later. But Mickles learned from that and after that he brought Miskins into the team and they started playing a 4-3-3 situation which is how the Dutch football to this day yeah. And shout out to Mikkel's awesome book, Team Building, The Road to Success. That's a, a great read if anyone hasn't read it. It's a fascinating read. I mean, and it's amazing. I mean, bear in mind, I think it was written in the 60s or 70s. Um, how relevant it is still to this day. And there's a, there's a thing about Mikkel's afterwards. Um, so this is after they won the European Championship. He was working for the KNVP and he wrote a uh, 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 it's not a book, it's um, a pamphlet almost. Hmm. I can't remember the name of it in Dutch, but it means the, the view from the place where the Dutch Cane of are based in, in a town. I can't remember what it's called now, but it's called The View from That Town. And that's the, um, for years, the template for Dutch coaching. It was the Mikkels legacy went on and on and on for years afterwards. And, you know, um, at Ajax, the, the sort of People often say that, you know, he invented total football. He might have developed, didn't invent it. I don't know who invented total football. It's lost in the mystery of time. But uh, Jack Reynolds, who was an English coach, who coached Ajax a long time, played a similar sort of total football. Mm. Grant Perino mm. team played a similar sort of total football. It happened in Argentina. The real them, uh, La Machina team, who we played, played a similar sort of total football. The Hungarians played a similar Peter Guti was the first false nine but I knew way before Pep Guardiola had that sort of uh, the same, this idea about playing messages of false nine yeah. years ago but, yeah but Mikkel's yeah. certainly yeah. certainly had his influence on on that whole Dutch generation and even teams to come yeah, yeah. one of the greatest managers of all time I, I think yeah, yeah. Record speaks for itself well thanks Gary yeah. for your time and sharing the stories and memories it's been been awesome very much appreciated Oh, thanks, for having me on. Thanks for letting me ramble on so much. Oh, no problem. Yeah. Yeah. Break on, but yeah, I enjoyed you mentioning Thank yeah, you so no much. No worries. Just let people know where can they find your work, your your books, your your website, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, I'm on Amazon. If you can talk to me, Gary Backer, G A R Y T H A C K E I, I'll find my page there. I think there's six on there at the moment. There's a couple more to come. published books and a couple of novels that I've written as well. Um, so we're all there. You can follow me on Twitter at All Blue Days. Um, I always follow back and follow us. Great. Thanks, Gary. Much appreciated. Take care. Cheers, buddy. Bye bye. That was a great conversation with author and football journalist Gary Thacker. Uh, incredible, some of the the stories there with the the Dutch team from '74 and the the influence that they they still have today. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Uh, please don't forget to rate, review, and share the podcast where you can. Every little bit helps. Uh, Thanks for listening. Take care and enjoy your culture.